0: Originally, I was, I was going to just go into the next message in Ephesians, and I realized it's been five weeks, and I think it's pretty important to kind of get us back on track. So I kind of want to, this morning, kind of take a wide-angle lens to Ephesians as a whole and kind of give you some reflections uh, of my heart and some discoveries that I've made that have made all the difference um, in, in how I approach the Christian life and how I approach growth in particular. Um, right here in, in Ephesians, um, by asking the question, why. Well, why? Why do a series of messages on Ephesians 1 through 3? Why? Now, before I get to the answer to that, I want to take you on a bit of a flyby, a one-minute, 27-second flyby of the first three chapters. Um, because they're all about what God has done and has very little to say about what we should do. Um, if you can imagine uh, Paul being the, the, the pilot of a, of a 747 and we're all inside and, and he's taking us on a flyby of the heights and the depths of redemption. Um, that's a pretty good visual because this is a turbulent three chapters, ups and downs. He starts off in in verse 3 of chapter 1 with a great blessing of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to list all of these blessings of being chosen and so forth in this great plan of redemption and forgiven. And then you can almost hear him in verse 15 come over the mic and pray for us because he enters into this prayer. He prays that we might be able to see, you know, what is the hope to which he has called us? What are the glorious inheritance of uh, of God's inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? So he's like praying over the intercom for us to be able to see the heights of redemption. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, you read things like, Um, who we are, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It kind of leaves you in the tops of the Himalayas of redemption. And it's wonderful. That's the end of chapter 1. But then the plane takes a nosedive at the beginning of chapter 2, straight into the pit of death and sin. It's taken us from the fullness down into, and by the way, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. It says, down into the deep valley, but it takes a a big upturn when it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And it takes us back into the clouds, talking about the purpose of everything, which is so that he may show in the coming ages the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. That's he's going to show off his grace. So you're back up in the plain, way high again. Then you go down into another valley. In the middle of chapter 2, we might call it the Valley of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, by the way, if you're new to the Bible, it just means you're a non-Jew. You're not part of God's promised family, at least not in the Old Testament sense. And he says, you Gentiles, you were separated from Christ, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were, you were strangers to the covenant without hope and without God in the world. In other words, it's a terrible place to be. So we've gone from the heights of grace back down into the valley of the Gentiles. But then he starts to pull us up again in the plane, and he says, but... He says, you who were once far off have now been brought near through the blood of Christ. And he goes on back into the heights and says, and you too are being built together into a dwelling place for God. So he's taking you back up. So it's like these heights. Now, if I was on this plane, I'd be sick and throwing up. But you sense the fullness of God and then down into the valley of sin and death and back up to grace and the coming ages back down into the valley of the Gentiles and then Paul takes a little detour in this plane and says and here's my particular ministry to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ and then he ends in chapter 3 again back in the clouds when he's praying that we might know comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Way back up in the heights again. That's the the first three chapters in a 1.28 second flyby. And then in chapter 4 is the first time that he really starts talking about what we should do. The first three chapters outline for us the sweeping heights and depths of what God has done. But then in chapter 4, he begins to transition and tell us what we're to do. Starts giving us practical instructions on how our Christianity should affect what we say and, and um, uh, what we sh- that we shouldn't be drunk with wine, that how we should treat our wives, how we should treat our husbands and so forth, how we should fight the fight of faith, wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and so forth. So he gives us practical instruction in 4, 5, 6, but there's this great layout of what God has done in chapters 1 through 3, which is our focus. And back to the question, why? Some might think that the first three chapters, because they are, a bit more theological because they are not dealing with the nitty-gritty of real everyday life like marriage and contentment and those kinds of things, that the first three chapters are impractical, um, disconnected, or irrelevant. And I believe that that is completely and 100% wrong. And I'm hoping to show you that because I have discovered in the way that Paul has laid out in Ephesians 1 through 3 being what God has done, and then after that, talking about what we should do as Christians, um, a truth, a discovery that if you get it right, then I believe it does liberate the Christian life and give you strength and power. Because the first three chapters do something different than the second three chapters do. The first three chapters are intended and designed by God To grow faith. To grow faith. Now, to understand that, you kind of have to back up and ask the question, what is is faith? How important is it? Um, What's its nature? How does it really affect a person's life? Let me just make a couple of observations with regards to to that very thing, um, the importance of faith. Ephesians itself talks about how important it is at several key points. I'm just going to put them all up on the the board at the same time. Almost there. Most of you, you know this. So this is recap for you. Chapter 1, verse 19. He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believes? That's another word for faith. Faith accesses the immeasurable greatness of his power. Chapter 2, verse 8. A verse most everybody has memorized if they've been in a church for any period of time. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So it's through faith that we access salvation. Chapter 3, verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access. And he's talking about access and boldness to the Father um, with confidence through our faith in him. So it's through our faith that we now actually can come free into the throne room of God in fellowship with our Father. Chapter 3, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is just Ephesians, but but it is central, it's crucial, it's pivotal to Christian life that we get this idea of faith right. Um, In both Testaments, old and new, people were saved and accessed the power of God by faith and faith alone. Abraham lived by faith and was saved by faith alone, as are you and I. There has been no difference. That's how crucial and how pivotal this thing called faith is. That's its importance, and I think most of us in here get that, at least theologically. So what does faith believe? What is the object? Every faith has to have some object, something that you that you believe in, you know, if you say, I I believe that this elevator has the capacity to lift me up to the top floor, that's a, the object of your faith in that point is the cables in the elevator. What is the object of faith in the Christian life? That too could be answered with a single word, you could say Jesus, that's the Sunday school answer, and that's a pretty good one, that our faith is in Jesus, who he is, what he's done on our behalf in his death and resurrection, and who he is. And the fact that he's coming again and will resurrect us from the dead. I mean, that's a great answer. But let me answer that in terms of Hebrews 1. Because it gives us a a, a sense of the nature and the object of our faith that I think is very important. Hebrews 11.1 says this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen There's a couple of key words that I think are important in grasping the nature and the object of of what we believe. One is the two words, assurance and conviction. The faith is being convinced of something, inwardly persuaded that something is true, assured. That's how it describes faith. Faith. But it also describes the nature of it in terms of its belief and confidence, assurance, inward persuasion of things we can't see. A reality that we can't touch, we can't taste, we can't put it into a test tube. We can't reduce it to a mathematical scientific formula. It cannot be proven with, uh, with eyesight or touch. The whole substance of the Christian life is built on the fact that we are convinced that certain things we can't see with human eyes are absolutely true. More true, more real than this room that we're in. Convinced, convicted, assured that they are true. Those invisible realities, God, the Spirit, heaven, the resurrection, forgiveness of sins, all of those we can't see with physical eyes. We can't touch with physical hands. All we can do is accept what God has done, who he is, by this thing called faith, which is a way of seeing with the heart, not with the eyes. A conviction that is in here, that I'm persuaded that it's true that I'm forgiven, that I I am saved by what Christ has done, that God is real, that he exists in three persons, that his love and mercy came all the way down into the valley of the Gentiles and included me into the family. Those are the invisible realities that are the basis of our Faith, truths that center on who God is and what he has done. Ephesians 1 through 3, I believe, outline those what you might call invisible realities that are the object of our faith, our believing. Now, the next part is, is if, 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 if faith is so crucial and pivotal And if its nature and object is to trust and be convinced and assured in an unseen reality centering itself upon God, what kind of effect can we expect that this faith will have on a life? And I believe it has dramatic effect. Real faith should have a dramatic effect if you really believe and are convinced that the realities of God are true. The whole Testament is full of stories of people who whose lives were dramatically altered by belief and faith, this inward persuasion and conviction. Uh, David, for example, went on the battlefield as a boy facing the mammoth Goliath. Not trusting in his sling or his abilities, but he went on the battlefield trusting in the unseen reality of God's power on the battlefield. He was convinced it was true, and in that convincing of the unseen reality, walked out and faced an enemy. Even in this chapter of of Hebrews chapter 11, you have these dramatic effects that this thing called faith has on the lives of individual people. We're told that Abraham leaves his family and home trusting in the unseen promise of God. We're told that he offers up his son Isaac, which is an amazing display of worship, trusting in the unseen power of God's resurrection. We're told that Moses turns away from the sinful pleasures in Egypt because he is convinced or believes in the unseen reward that lies ahead. And it gives us a list of amazing conquests of people who did amazing things, including um, martyrdom of being eaten by wild animals and sawn in two and set on fire. Why? Because they believed in an unseen reality. That's faith and the dramatic effects that it has on life or should have on life, which is in short supply in what we often see around us in the church today. Dramatic effect of this confidence and assurance of this unseen reality of all that God is and his power and his wisdom and his love and his mercy, the way he has worked in in history. But that's the effect it can and should have upon a life, this faith and this unseen reality of who God is and how he has worked chiefly in Christ Jesus himself. It reminds me a little bit of a, a movie that I saw. Um, I'm a movie watcher and a book reader, and so you're going to have to. Those of you who consider yourself sophisticates and and you find mo- movie clips a bit beneath you, um, well, just you know what? There are some people in here. It might help, so just indulge me for them. But there's this movie. I think it was back in the '80s or '90s. It was Steven Spielberg made for for families is called Hook, um, starring uh, Robin Williams as Peter Banning and Dustin Hoffman as the Captain Hook. And it's basically an adaptation of, of, uh, of Peter Pan, only in this case it starts off with this middle-aged guy, kind of pudgy, Robin Williams, um, whose name is Peter Banning. He's a, he's a corporate shark and heads over to London, does a little speaking engagement with his wife and two little kids, and in the middle of the night his little kids get kidnapped by Captain Hook. And uh, drug off to Never Never Land. Well, as any good father would do, this middle-aged Peter Banning decides he's going to go after him, and he does. But there's this moment where he is trying to get at his kids. They're caught in a net, and he's on the mast of a ship, petrified. And at that moment, gives up and can't save his kids. But in the middle of a movie, there's this crucial turning point where Peter Banning sees something he couldn't see before, an unseen reality. And it alters his life and the whole story. Now, here's the, the clip, and I hope you can hear it. This is, he's a, sitting around a table with the lost boys, and he has already been completely defeated. But notice what happens to his sight.
1: Are you in heaven? No, please. Eat. What's the deal? Where's the real food? If you can't imagine yourself being Peter Pan, you won't be Peter Pan, so eat up. Eat what? There's nothing here. Gandhi ate more than this. Don't you remember? This used to be your favorite game. Forget the games. I want some real food. I want steak. I want eggs. I want a cup of coffee. Betty. 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 Oh, Lucio, why don't you just go suck on a dead dog's dog?
0: Thanks for indulging that. But at this moment, right there when he realizes, I can see something I didn't see before, alters everything. Um, The whole rest of the movie, not only is he sees something that wasn't there and now convinced of something that can't be seen or couldn't be seen with his human eyes, but he realizes for the first time that I'm not Peter Banning. I am Peter Pan. And that realization gives him courage and gives him power so that with the rest of the movie, he goes and he rescues his kids and saves the day it's a, it 's a, it's a realization of a reality, and that I believe is is key to a faith that is full of power and strength and courage is that we actually believe that we 're convinced that God is real, his power is real, his wisdom is beyond measure, his power beyond measure, his his grace and his love that reaches down into the valley of sin, valley of the Gentiles, and it's real. And I am, because of that, I am a child of God, adopted and fully accepted, justified in his sight. And that realization in the human heart is what unleashes the power and the courage to live and to accomplish the shoulds in the Bible. Now the question is, what is it that feeds this kind of conviction and assurance and faith that that brings out this power and and strength uh, for the Christian life? I believe that what feeds faith in the unseen centers itself on God. What feeds faith is a focus on the unseen. Or to put it differently, a focus of the mind and the heart on the truths that uncover the unseen reality of all that God is and all that he has done for us in Christ. That is Ephesians 1 through 3. We might think, and the world may think, that it's irrelevant. But actually what it's doing is it's laying out the banquet table and saying, This is the invisible reality that causes all of life to be lived in courage and strength. The fact that you have been chosen by God and accepted, that you have been redeemed and your transgressions have been forgiven, that you have been captured by grace from the lowest place and set at the right hand of the Son of God because of grace. And the realization of those invisible realities are what feeds the faith. In other words, what Paul lays out before he ever gives us practical instruction on what we should do as Christians which we shoulder the responsibility of is he lays out the food to fill the faith so that we can actually then go on with courage and strength to live out those things. He didn't start with practical advice. He started by feeding our faith with truth about the invisible realities of redemption. And that, I believe, is, is, is an is Is an approach to life, a way of seeing life, and understanding God, grace, and the Bible itself that should revolutionize your life. Because I don't believe, this is probably going to, may sound alarming to some of you, but let me qualify it. I don't believe that the command portions of the Bible... Command portions, those are the ones that, like, uh, you know, thou shalt not commit a m- murder or adultery. Those are command portions. Or when Paul says, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Or says, husbands, love your wives. Or wives, submit to your husbands. Or kids, honor your father and mother. Those are command portions. Those are directives. Those are practical ex- exhortations as to how we should live. I don't believe that the command portions of the Bible were ever intended by God to feed our faith. All those command portions of the If you get this wrong, it's like putting a noose around your neck and hanging yourself. All the command portions of the Bible can do, the thou shouts, the thou shalt nots, is it can tell us we're wrong. It can show us where the boundaries are. Imagine yourself driving down the road, like guardrails. It'll tell you if you're off the beaten path. And functions a bit like road signs. This is where you should go. But here's the thing. If it can tell you that you're wrong, if it can set boundaries in your life and it can show you where to go, it doesn't have the power to take you there. The whole Old Testament is a monumental lesson on the fact that commands themselves do not equate to power in the Christian life. They don't. Otherwise, he would have just given us the Ten Commandments. But he didn't. He gave it and showed us that we couldn't keep it. So they were never meant to empower the command portions. They don't feed faith itself. All they can do is direct. No one sticks a signpost in their gas tank. You know that a signpost has a function. It was meant to direct, but not meant to fuel or empower. And that's where Christians have to be able to differentiate, it's a big word, make a distinction between different functions within parts of the Bible. That the parts of the Bible that tell us how we should live are directive for our faith, but they are not empowering. The truths of the Bible that empower faith, feed faith, fill faith, produce courage are the truths that center on what God has done who he is, what he has done for us in Christ, the fact that because of what he's done, you are a son and you are a daughter, fully redeemed and righteous in his sight. Those truths are like wind in the sails of a person's heart. Those are the truths that make the heart sing and faith swell up in one's life. Now, does that mean that I have no place for the practical exhortations or the, or the teachings of thou shalt or thou shalt not in my life or your life, absolutely not. God included them for a reason. I know that I am a frail person and I can easily justify myself if I don't have clear boundaries. So I know I need them. But they're not what move the faith. They're not what empower. And getting those things confused... Because we by nature tend to gravitate towards things that we can manage, like commands. We tend to gravitate to those things, thinking that we can grow our faith by concentrating on the practical portions. And we don't get the function right. They have a function, but not to empower or strengthen your faith. It's not food, it's just directives. I believe that with my whole heart. Then, until a person by grace prayerfully because the spirit again has to take the word and do this learns to savor the portions of the Bible that talk about God as being good as steadfast love how he has worked in history who we are because of his grace that his mercy is rich and where he's taking us all of these invisible realities of God's working that those should portions of the Bible are just going to be defeating. That's why Ephesians, I think, 1 through 3 are there. That's why he did it first, to feed the faith of God's people. This is what he's done. This is who you are. This is what he has accomplished in Christ. This is where you were, and this is where you're going. And those are the truths that that are to fill the human heart and produce the kind of freedom Dan Overby was talking about. Now, what, what difference does this really make? Um, for me, it, it, it makes a personal difference and should make a difference in how we minister to each other. Personally, I've gotten this mixed up. And I've found myself beached on the rocks of disappointment, failure, because I have tried to feed my faith with the commands of Scripture, not God and His grace. Uh, In fact, if you were to ask me uh, when I was a new believer, what is your favorite book of the Bible? I would have probably instantly said the book of James. James is in the canon. It's It's in the Bible. And I liked it because it's kind of a practical guide to the Christian life, but in my ignorance, I believe that simply knowing how to practice the Christian life would equate to practicing the Christian life. There's a lot of overestimation in my strength in that belief. James is still a good book, but my thoughts and my approach has dramatically changed. Um, Which is probably why if you ask an older believer who's been in the church for a while or, or aged what is your favorite chapter or book of the Bible? They probably wouldn't say James. They probably point out a chapter or a book that talks about who God is for them. And most every older person that I have met before they have died has said, my favorite chapter, including my grandfather said this, Psalm 23. Not a single command in that book or chapter because the soul needs to be reminded that God is our shepherd. That he's the one who leads us beside still waters and he's the one who restores our souls that when we are in the valley of the shadow of death that he's with us and and his rod and his staff will comfort us and that he will anoint our heads with oil he will prepare a table in the presence of our enemies his goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives and he will bring us into his house where we will dwell forever those truths encourage comfort breathe fresh wind into faith Because that's faith food. Ephesians 1 through 3, faith food. Um, Romans 1 through 9, faith food. Revelation 4, 5, 20 and 21, 22, faith food. That fill the sails of the Christian life reminding you of the invisible realities that are the basis of everything we know and believe. I'll tell you what, when I'm on my deathbed and the day is going to come, I know it, I'm more certain of it now than I was two years ago. Think about it every week. I don't know why, morbid, maybe it's, I think it's good to keep your mortality in mind, but be that as it may. When I'm on my deathbed and I'm afraid, and I will be afraid, don't just give me a command, fear not, Dan, that's what the Bible says, don't be afraid. That doesn't do anything for me, it tells me that I'm Outside the bounds of not being afraid. But give me a reason. Give me something for my soul. Something like Romans chapter 8. That nothing shall separate you, Dan, from the love of Christ. Not life or death. Not things present or things to come. Not anything in all creation shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Now my soul sings. You see, those are the truths that are food for faith. So it, it has a huge impact personally on how you approach the Christian life, how you approach the Bible. All the Bible is inspired, but it's inspired to function differently. And those truths about God's greatness and his grace and his love and his holiness and his works, those are the food for the soul. So it should impact you personally. I hope, I hope, I hope you hear the distinction. The command portions of the Bible direct, but they do not empower the portions that center and exalt God and Christ and what he has done in human history on the behalf of those who believe, those are truths that feed, fill, and give life to faith. But that also should have an effect on how we treat each other and how we minister to each other. Because oftentimes, and I'll be the first to admit that I believe that at times I have abused the scripture in this room by wrongfully thinking that in order to get the congregation to transform or do something better, that I will push a command portion of the Bible. So if it's, you know, our husbands need to love their wives better. Well, let's just hammer the command and hope that that command will empower them to love their wives better. I think my understanding I am abusing the function of love your wives. I'm not going to bring transformation by pushing on a command. People still need to be told to love their wives and so forth, but stressing the command's not going to get them there. Why not wash them in the fact of how God has loved his bride, Christ has loved his bride and sacrificed himself for her and bring them to the cross and then That is what fills faith and enables a person to say, I want to love my wife like that. Different. One creates guilt, the other creates a sense of freedom and hope. And I'm not the only one who's made the mistake. It's easy for us in different ministry positions and leaderships, even with our own kid, to think that if we simply hammer home an instruction or a moral imperative somehow that's gonna translate into the changed life of a child a wife a husband or people that you minister to you guys need to step it up is that it I know I need to step it up but that's simply telling me to step it up it's not gonna get me there Can you give me some food for my soul and my faith so that I see the bigness of God and I know his power and his wisdom and I know that he loves me and I know I'm a child and I'm adopted and you feed me with that and I'll tell you what, I'll step it up. See, it it totally impacts and affects the way we treat each other. We just revert to commands to try and get people to do things in Take them from point A to point B, and it just doesn't work like that. I'll tell you what you want to try it. Husband, go home and try the command-oriented change with your wife. Wife, you need to step it up and do some better submission. You tell me how that works for you. (laughs) Or you wives. This is important. Why don't you tell your husband you need to step it up and be the spiritual leader of our home? Now, he may need to hear that, but I guarantee you that command and that Instruction is not going to translate into him being a better leader. Guaranteed. It is not the function of commands and instructions to change people. It's the truths of God that center on him, what he has done in Christ, and what he has graciously accomplished, and where we're headed. And those truths provide food for faith to actually then go on and be a better leader in my home. You see? I, I hope that we get this and, and um, because it should alter the way we minister to each other and even approach the Bible in our own personal change. If you want to increase your faith, you know, prayerfully learn to savor the parts of the Bible that talk about God, talk about his grace, his power. Savor the cost of your redemption at the cross of Jesus. And I believe you will see faith increase in your heart and then enable you to better live out the Christian life more faithfully. That's how Paul, and I think the reason why he spent three chapters surveying the unseen reality of all that God has done and then begins to inform us how we should live. So I hope you'll take that and think about it and it will alter the way you approach the Bible and your personal growth because I think we've reversed it and we find ourselves often more defeated than um, than growing, Father. I pray that you would bring this um, this understanding of the nature of biblical truth and how it functions and some parts function differently than other parts, and that you would allow the people of Parkway personally to just fall in love with the portions that talk about your your bigness and your grace and your majesty and your splendor and your sovereignty and and your um, that you have shown us in the cross and where we're headed and, and that we're children adopted and that we would savor those realities and know that those are the most important things to lay hold of and those are the things that feed our faith and then enable us out of that then to go on and honor you by the way that we live um, as children of God so Lord just take this press it into our minds into our lives and revolutionize the way that we treat each other too in Christ's name
2: I guess the question we ask ourselves is, what will we stand in? Imperatives and commands that we know we can't keep? The promises and the grace of God. Oh Lord, let it be your grace.
1: You stood before creation. Eternity in your hand. You spoke the earth into motion, my soul now to stand. for my shame my sin weighed upon your shoulders my soul out stand so what can I say what can I say So Lord to your you surrender, surrender.
2: all I am is is yours. So we give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, make known among the nations what he has done, sing to him, sing praise to him, tell of all his wonderful acts, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek our God lift their voices and say, my strength is my God.
1: Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord Wait upon the Lord We will wait upon the Lord Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord We will wait upon the Lord Wait upon the Lord Our God, you reign forever Our hope, our strong desire comfort those in me, you lift us up on waves like
2: lift up to you your ways your wonders and your work father live in and through us by your grace may your commands be fulfilled not because we examine them but because we examine you and love you and are filled with you god we praise you and thank you in jesus name and all god's people said amen go with the lord